Hello there. Welcome back from your holidays. I hope you had all kinds of time to, to rest and recover, spend uh, much deserved time with friends and loved ones. And thank you for being patient while we take our hiatus here at the Price of Pain podcast. But we're back now and we're kicking off this spring season. We're going to go ahead and call it season two with a fantastic episode. I just got finished speaking with Dr. Joseph Riley III. He's an associate dean for faculty affairs, uh, an interim department chair, and full tenured professor here in the College of Dentistry at the University of Florida. But more importantly, he is one of the founders of the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence. He's been here from the beginning and is still active and relevant. He's taken on, as you just heard, uh, a, a pretty sizable leadership and administrative role, but his influence in this center is undeniable. And a large part of that is his background before he ever came to academia. He's one of the most well-rounded individuals I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. Had a great conversation with him, but I think that characteristic of who he is has contributed so greatly to how prominent and influential he's been in, not only in price, but in pain research in general. And I think you'll find that with this episode. We spend a fair amount of time talking about his background and we do get around to the science, but I think this is going to be one of those episodes where it's a part one of who knows how many. Expect him back again. But in the meantime, here's Dr. Joe Riley. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Pro in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. I won't go too far back. I won't say I was born in a little, you know, in a little shack in Tennessee <laughs> on, on a Tuesday evening, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, but for, I, I suppose the best way to start is to say that I didn't start out to be an academic. I have a family. My brother and father are physicians, anesthesiologists, but I was the kid who didn't like school. Ah. So I was great at sports, though. Okay. So after, what sports? What, what, oh, what did you like? Anything? Everything. I, I played hockey, baseball, football. One Grew up in Michigan. You're one of those guys. I, did did I know that? Where in Michigan are you uh, from? In Charlotte. It's about 15, 18 miles outside of Lansing, so it's south central. Okay. Small right. farming town, eight, 9,000 people. Yeah. Um, my dad was a family physician for a while there. All the men worked at the Oldsmobile factory in Lansing for the most part. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, as an aside, I'm from Lapeer. Do you know where Lapeer is? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, now, minus the the doctors in the family part, yeah. but uh, you know, a lot of my family members worked at the truck plant in Flint for GM. Ah, so there you go. Yeah. Anyway, so it was, so it was that kind of a town. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so anyway, my dad then. Let me think. How does this work here? Yeah. So, I, so again, I was a, a, a so-so student, but you go to college because everybody does, and right. you know. So I started at. Uh, Lansing Community College. Okay. Um, you know, got C's, wasn't very interested in going. My dad then got burnt out being a family physician, came to Gainesville to do an anesthesiology residency. But I stayed in Michigan where, you know, I work construction. And so I was supporting myself. And after about a year and a half of going to school most of the time, but not always, and working, I said, this is really stupid to not live at home when I could live at home at free. My parents weren't overbearing. Mm -hmm. But just to be independent, I'm working every day, and what's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so anyway, so I moved. I moved to Gainesville. Right. Um, actually, played on Santa Fe Community College's baseball team okay. as, their, as a catcher. Okay. I had a bunch of fun stories I'll tell you on another day. <laughs> um, and But still, you know, only got so-so grades. Moved Dad moved to Orlando to Florida Hospital to start the anesthesiology program. And I came with them and enrolled in UCF and even went to school even less. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you able to play sports at all down there? Uh, um, the... I, I signed. I, I pl was playing on a men's league softball team then. Okay, okay. Again, I was, you know, a, a pretty decent player. Mm -hmm. uh, but... I, again, wasn't doing well in school. I think the last semester I got all Fs. Mm -hmm. I think I ended up with a 1.2 GPA at that point mm -hmm. with, you know, I don't know, 50 credits, whatever, 40 credits. Right. But I love cars. Yeah. Okay. And now we're talking. Yeah. And so actually even before that, my first car was an MG and I, you know, I worked on them. My dad said, hey, I'll lend you money to buy the car, but if it breaks down, you got to fix it. And so we did. My brother had an Alfa Romeo and we worked together in the garage. It's a very so, Michigan story, though. Yeah, yeah. And, but I was was intrigued with racing, and so I actually wanted to be a race car driver. Okay. It was my first uh, goal in life. It wasn't to be a physician or an academic. How far did you go with that? Um, so I bought a car, um, and so I figured, well, if I'm going to be a race car driver, I ought to be involved in the race car business. So I actually dropped out of school and started a race car shop. Oh, just like that? Just like that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, you know... I had a couple thousand dollars that I'd saved up and, you know, back then a drill press and I already had tools mm -hmm. and I had two other friends and we sort of formed a loose partnership and, and so we worked on our cars. We had a couple of customer cars that we would come, we would come in, we'd maintain them, mm -hmm. um, built a car for the 24 hours of Daytona, wasn't fast enough to qualify. Okay. Um, but that was going to be my next question is, is what type yeah. of racing? Now the, the yeah, MG so the, and whatnot. These would be right, road racing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so... Is, is that was I was the parts manager. That was my job. And I realized in Orlando, which is where we were living, mm -hmm. that it was impossible to get parts for foreign cars if you didn't have a Volkswagen. So I said to my, these guys, you know, we should par open a parts store. So, so we, we all got our dads to, fi to sign a loan for $5,000, opened a parts store. Mm -hmm. Turned out I was the one that did all the work. They didn't. <laughs> so after you, I Typical said, group I, project. I said, listen, you guys, well, of course, I'm 20 years old, so you can see I'm naive. Right. Uh, I said, either I'm going to quit or I'm going to buy you out. And so we, you know, we, our inventory is up to 10 grand. For 10 grand, I'll buy you out or I'm not coming to work tomorrow. Wow. And they, and they agreed. And so my dad signed for another $10,000 loan, bought them out. Um, you know, paid the bank off mm -hmm. um, and did and did that for 18, 20 years. So what were they doing also at the same time? Were they did they have similar background as you, the, the other guys or was it? Oh, well, one guy was a little older. He had a wife and worked for an air conditioning company. And mm -hmm. so he was allegedly our business manager and kept the books, although mm -hmm. we never made any money. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that happened. And the other guy was supposed to come in every day, but he'd come in at noon and leave at three. And right. You know, right. Yeah. yeah, And yeah, so they, they just. He wasn't motivated. He was a couple years younger. Yeah, but you're yeah. the young twenty-something who's, who's hanging 20, his I'm hat 20, on I'm this. I'm twenty this years old, thing. twenty-one, and started the parts stores um, for foreign cars. Okay, yeah. And so there was only one competitor. Ran that for uh, probably twenty years. Had five parts stores. Expanded and had three auto repair shops. So that was my business. Had forty some employees. Now, were you racing at this time also? 
No, I wasn't. Okay. I was okay. always, it was always my goal. Okay. Although I actually started doing triathlons then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> big big ones or the the yeah. The I was actually the, I was actually the state champion as a master. Really? Yeah. And I what it would have been. 1997. Okay. Doing the sprint distance. I never okay. did the marathon. Okay. Okay. The long stuff, which is why I can still run. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I did. A, I did a couple of those when I was pretty young, mm -hmm. uh, middle school age, and and uh, as a as a relay. You know, I was always a, yeah. I was the cyclist. I, I rode oh, my okay. bike everywhere uh -huh. until I got my first car, uh, seventy six oh, Firebird okay. yeah. Formula, for the record. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, so, anyway, so that's a fun so, length, though. That's, so, that's so as I was working the last stuff. five years, again, the business was big enough that I had good managers. I've always been good at managing people, mm -hmm. taking people, and I like to think that I make them better than they ever thought they could be by trusting them, giving them responsibility, but talking them through their problems. Mm -hmm. You know, a guy who works for you in a repair shop, you know, his wife doesn't give him the kid for the weekend. So he gets drunk. He comes in late on Monday. It wasn't that he wanted to come in late. Right. It's other stuff in his life. And right. so if you have a holistic way of managing your employees, they they appreciate you, they value, and you build a team. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened. How much of that do you think you got from, from your involvement in athletics, playing team sports? None. Really? <laughs> Where, what, what, do you, what do you think was the, the catalyst um, for – because that's a, that's a pretty strong leadership tendency. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just think because I was the kid who wasn't good in school, you sort of always caught it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I always would say, you know, I don't deserve that. I was, you know, I was active, so I was the kid that would, you know, my brother would sit in the chair. I was the one who was running around, knocked over somebody's vase, you know, when we were over at their house after church. <laughs> right. right. You're <laughs> and, that kid. And so you catch it, and you think, no, but I'm really a good kid. And so I started discarding when people would try and make me feel bad and realize, well, you know, even I need to, I need someone to acknowledge how good I am mm -hmm. because luckily I figured it out. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the sports part. Yeah. Okay. So I was good okay. in sports, so I knew I had value. Yeah, and you just sort of, you know, it's not any one moment that you think, oh, well, that's it. It's just, you just sort of evolve that direction. Right. So speaking of evolution then, I don't want to skip over the racing because that's, yeah. you know. Well, the racing is more in later life. So I raced yeah. for a year and a half, blew the engine in my car up, and didn't have the money to rebuild it. So uh -huh. I sold it. And that was about the time, well, that was the time I was just starting the race car business. And okay. we were transitioning over to the parts store, mm -hmm. buying them out. And so I really had no extra money. And so it was me. I talked a friend into coming in, and there was two of us ran, running the first store. I ran the counter, and he did the deliveries mm -hmm. and just built it from there. Okay, so how did you evolve from that into academia? Academics, yeah, okay. Well, what happened was foreign cars sort of be, have, now they're, they've sort of migrated to what a domestic car is. Like right now a Toyota or a Chevy doesn't make any difference. You can go to Napa and buy the parts. Mm -hmm. When I started, Napa didn't carry anything for any foreign cars. Mm -hmm. And so as time went on, the Goodyear store, instead of calling the, the, you know, the Chevy brake pads and the water pump and the clutch, mm -hmm. and they call me for you know, the head gasket set and you know, a set of brake pads for the Toyota, oh, they were talking to the Napa guy, well, send me the parts for the Toyota. So they started calling us less, and I could see the handwriting on the wall. Yeah. So I realized I needed to do something else. I realized that in reality, I'm not running these businesses. I'm the psychologist that manages all the people that run my businesses. <laughs> okay. And so I said, well, that's interesting. A psychologist could be an academic. 
He could work for a hospital. He could have a private practice. So I thought it is a versatile degree because mm -hmm. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. In fact, the day it dawned on me, I was going to I was going to move out of that business. I took the next day off, went to the university library to look at a book of professions and then went to the bookstore to look through textbooks to see what I might study that looked interesting. <laughs> So, uh, and, and if I may, I, I hope it's not too forward to ask. You, no. you had your dad at this point still? Like, so you had some people you could bounce off the idea of, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about jumping back into this, uh, this college thing? Um, I, I mean, I let them know. I, I, I've never been one who, you know, who, you know, for lack of a better term, needed to tell the story to someone so they could justify what I wanted to do. Yeah, it doesn't look like you, you get no. external validation. Uh, no, and, and, and in some ways, <laughs> I mean, so, so, you know, that sounds like a strength, but it could have been that I had myself in such a corner, there was no other way to go. <laughs> it's all how you frame the narrative, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, yeah, so I, I, I do remember, though, when I had my parents over on a Friday, I said, oh, by the way, I'm decided to sell the businesses and go back to school. And my dad with a relieved look on his face, said, Joe, I'm so happy to hear this. I always knew you had more academic in you. <laughs> but but I think before that... Uh, and, I, and how old were you at that point? I was if, probably if you don't 30, mind 39. Okay, okay. 40, okay. 40 probably, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, so it took six semesters to go... And he never lost faith in you. He to, knew, that, to UC, he knew to, that you were going to yeah, get back. To go to UCF, <laughs> get a degree in psychology. Uh-huh. Um, applied to a couple schools, South Florida and UF. I mm -hmm. did triathlon, so I wanted to stay in the warm weather. Mm -hmm. And UF accepted me. Um, and, yeah, so come up here, clinical psychology degree, did triathlons through graduate school. Okay. And then, and then again, w did my training, as I mentioned earlier, in the Facial Pain Center. Um, started doing pain research. As it turned out, because I'd been in business, and I've always been good with numbers, mm -hmm. And so research totally made sense to me. And so even when I took stats at UCF, it totally made sense. And, you know, back then, you know, we would do an ANOVA by hand and I could do one mm -hmm. and I got, you know, hundreds on the exams. Mm -hmm. And so I came here and collecting data on patients and, you know, being a psychologist, being a psychometrician, and you come up with ways to measure things that you can't see. It just so made sense to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I was successful. I could write papers. You know, you, you just sort of learn by doing in terms of the text part. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you sure. know, but understanding the data, analyzing it in an, an interesting way. That's a great strength to have, though, because uh, yeah. especially in, in when I say my generation, I, I mean people who are at this stage in, in their academic career, maybe not my age. Mm -hmm. um, but for a lot of people, that's the hang-up is, is the stats. And, and me included, yeah. you know, there's there's uh -huh. a, a point where I'm, you know, when I'm developing a paper, that's mm -hmm. the point where it's like, all right, well, how much of this am I going to be able to do? How much am I willing to figure out on my own? Uh -huh. And then at what point do I pull the shoot and call a biostatistician kind of thing? So, um, yeah. yeah, that's, uh, but that's, so coming into it with, with your ability I think that at least what stands out to me is mm -hmm. your self-awareness and the maturity that comes along that you don't have when you approach school as a teenager, as an 18-year-old coming into college. Yeah. That totally changes. So that self-awareness, but then if there's if there's one trait that really, a uh, technical trait that comes in handy, it's having at least that aptitude for statistics, if not the experience. That's So you, said, you, you came into this in a pretty good spot, it sounds like. Well, I would agree. And, you know, and... and I always tell folks that, okay, you take a giant table of data 
You can't say, hey, look at this. Do you see what's there? No, you can't see it. So statistics are the way to boil a giant spreadsheet, rows and columns, down into some inferences about patterns in that data. Right, right. And you know, if you use the tools, I think, I think it's a huge strength for a researcher to be able to run, you know, not just correlations, but but you know, think about the relationships that ought to exist. Mm -hmm. And as 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 pain research anyway has moved on, it's gone on originally when I started. You had three variables in your clinic. In fact, I, you know, I wrote down some of the papers I wrote so I'd remember them. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, I was, I did one on sleep, mood, and pain, mm -hmm. and because I did it. But my point is, though, before I get off track, there is that three variables off a clinical sample was enough to write a great paper and get published in the best journals right, because right. the models we were using were so simple. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, do you feel that it's not the case anymore now that, that there's been enough groundwork laid in, in those areas where, where uh, a more complex data set with more variables is required to get attention and to get publication? Well, we always had all the variables. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think my point is, is you could take a data set and cut it up into seven studies by looking right. at different combinations of three variables. Right. And the best pain journal would publish it because it was new. Right, right. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas now, you know, even all the control variables that we know control, and we know everything is so multiply determined related to human behavior, and certainly pain is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. And so to plan all, whatever your outcome is that you want to study, really thinking hard about how, how is it possible to collect all the potential variables that are going to really influence this outcome, mm -hmm. And then you pick the ones that are you really you're interested in, but you need the other ones. And again, because so many of the predictors we have are so correlated, you really need them in there. And you know the old third variable argument. You know, look, hey, look what we discovered. Oh no, it's really this other right. one that you yeah, didn't. Lurking variable. It's influencing yeah. all of the other variables <laughs> right. in your data set. <laughs> right. So uh, when when you started on with the clinical psychology and, and yeah. throughout your your education there, it really wasn't with the intention of pain research at that point, it sounds like. It was it was more... Well, no, actually it was. Was it really, right it from was. the beginning? And I'll tell you why. It, it, as, as I was, I think I had just applied to graduate school. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was, I was just going to, to undergrad. But anyway, I had a bike crash. Okay. So out uh, you know, doing triathlons, mm -hmm. so I, I think I, I would swim and run in my Speedo, and I, was, I, I was jumped on my bike to do, uh, they call it a brick, you do one sport after the other. Mm -hmm. Ride my bike around my neighborhood, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour in a Speedo, because mm -hmm. then I was going to go run. And as I'm coming down this hill, I'm passing this kid, and he turns in front of me. In a vehicle? In a car, no, on his bike. Oh, on his bike. Okay. Never saw me coming. I okay. go head over heels. I slide on my shoulders for, you know, 20 yards with no shirt on. Oh. So, sorry, I'm a little, but long story short, go to my orthopedic surgeon friend, and he says, you know, Joe, I, I think you're going to, so I must have been already accepted graduate school. He says, you know, you're going to be a clinical psychologist. We desperately need clinical psychologists in the pain world. He said, as an orthopedic surgeon, I see lots of folks with pain, and there's no one to refer them to. You ought to think about that. And so that's really what planted the that seed. That was it. That, that was it. Huh. And then I, then I got here and met Mike Robinson, and that's what he did. And so it was just sort of, I, 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 maybe I'm just that way. You just uh, Something comes to you, and it's just the right thing to do, and you just do it. There, yeah, I, I've had conversations with a lot of of the undergraduates that I've mentored and, mm -hmm. and lab staff, you know, throughout my, my doctoral work and, and even now. And it's, it's funny how 
some people are very keyed in on an endpoint. They decide, mm-hmm. or somebody decides for them. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in in their early teen years, even sometimes that this is what this is what I'm going to do for a career, mm-hmm. and I'm going to I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to find a school where, mm-hmm. and this is very different, at least even even from from my generation. Uh, you know, I graduated high school in the mid '90s, mm-hmm. and so there were there were a, a fair amount of people who didn't plan on college, um, and now it seems that you tailor your high school experience and, and the AP courses that you start taking at such an early age to this end goal mm-hmm. of a career that you're going to then pick a school for, you know, a university very early on that is good at this. You're going to get this degree. You're going to go to graduate school. You're going to get in your career and you're going to do that for the rest of your days until you retire. And there are a lot of people out there that because of that mm-hmm. in, in keeping that vision – miss out on some of the, the opportunities, I think, that, that you've capitalized on. Uh, and I, it, not to say that one way is right or wrong, but but there are a lot of those little things that come along that you might think this is the road, but there's a lot over that way. And this moment right here is is your yeah. opportunity to just turn your yeah. head and take a look. Well, my, I, I'll say I'll shout out to my brother, Jim, <laughs> who's okay. an anesthesiologist, but he will tell you he was that's that was him. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I didn't go on. He became an anesthesiologist like my dad, ended up taking over the chairmanship at Florida Hospital that my dad had, and is to this to this day, in his last couple of years of practicing anesthesiology out in California, but tells me he's bored out of his skull. He wishes he did something else for a living, mm-hmm. but the money's too good to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, that that's the thing. As long as you've got yeah. a little bit of little bit of time to spend it and enjoy it, then that's well, not no, the worst it, thing ever either. Yeah, you it's know? true. But I think I was always one who approached things that I found stimulating. Yeah. And again, that's why I went in the auto parts business. I thought it was a way to get into racing. Mm-hmm. I picked up triathlons at about 35 because I had, you know, again, I had time and, with I, you know, you gain a few pounds. You think, well, you know, it's time to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. And that was a perfect way to do it. I went to graduate school, did triathlons for the first couple of years. In addition to going to graduate school, my kids were becoming age of playing soccer. And so I became, I actually back in Orlando even, I became a soccer coach because I was the only dad that showed up with the, <laughs> with the kid, with their kid. Everybody else had their mom with them. And uh-huh. this was like under eight soccer. Uh-huh. And the guy who was the coach quit halfway through the year. And that day, all the mothers looked at me and said, Joe, would you be the coach? <laughs> I said, I guess I'm going to be the coach. Yeah, I guess it's decided. <laughs> so I did. So I was already into coaching, moved to Gainesville. There wasn't a traveling club. My kids were really good. And so I actually started the traveling soccer club in Gainesville. Okay. So again, another thing that I embraced. Yeah. And we built a, a great club that had teams, girls and boys. We'd go for a tournament and... I, I won a state championship as a coach with kids. That's great. We we had a <laughs> you, know, you and I connected, and for for everybody that's listening or watching along, um, you hosted the the holiday party for Price. Uh, uh-huh. This is pre COVID, obviously the last yeah. the last real holiday that we had before this hit. Yeah. Um, and I uh, knew very few people in uh-huh. Price, and so uh-huh. I wanted to introduce myself to you at that point, even though we had seen each other yeah. in meetings and stuff, and. And somehow that changed into, and I, and I can recall it plain as day, because I, had, I think I had gone to to get something out of the cooler or something. Yeah. We, were, we were standing with one of our, Eric, actually, um, yeah. who the audience will know, used to work on the podcast, uh, right at the entryway to your laundry room. <laughs> yes. And we had a very similar conversation to this. And, and I, I really appreciate that path, because it, it's 
maybe I do, uh, I don't want to say rely on, but notice a little bit more of that, that external validation of, oh yeah, okay, I'm not the only one doing it this way. Because mm -hmm. it's the same with me. I, you know, I have a history in music and in sports and in coaching. Um, was, was playing intercollegiate volleyball up until just a few mm -hmm. years ago, um, which was an odd situation, but uh, eligibility had it so that I could play club sports. And, and mm -hmm. so much of, of the academic portion of my career came from those little connections that were made there or skills that were picked up there. And, and so you shared just a little bit of, of the story that you told me just now okay. back then, just mm -hmm. a touch. Yeah. And it was enough to see, oh, yeah, there, there are other people out there who, who didn't go. Because I, I went back to, to school for undergrad, um, you know, what I guess I would have been my mid-20s, mm -hmm. taught high school for a while mm -hmm. um, while I was trying to figure out where I was going to coach and what I was going to do. So there's, you know, a fair amount of, well, sh should I have been a musician? You know, could I still? What do I want to do? And, and those you know, moments would come along and say, oh, no. And it, it almost taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you know, think about this. And, and so it, it seems like there are some similarities in, in yeah. our story, at least, that, that helped me to realize that, you know, yeah. that, that actually is a good thing. Yeah, you're flexible yeah. enough to see the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. But I would also argue that you're a better-rounded person, and some of those things that could have been your avocation become your hobby. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of was with me. In yeah. fact, you know, that's probably the story of my life, even if, if we ever get into my research. Oh, we certainly will. We will. Yeah, is we that will. is that, you know, I say my research curriculum, uh, uh, it's schizophrenic because I've done so many different things. But, but that's sort of the story of my life. And it's, you see an opportunity and you go there, you do well enough, but then you move on to another one. And so I don't think I'm famous for anything. I think I've contributed to a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. In fact, I look at what I did, and I said, you know, I should have spent a couple more years doing that. <laughs> we were well, you're all, still going, Joe. We, we, we were almost there, although, I mean, I'm 71 now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as administrator, I, I, I sad to say I'm never going to get freed up enough to literally run another lab. You know, you, you say <laughs> that. That's kind of funny. I uh, Now, his his position is a little bit different. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Clanton up at the College of Health and Human Performance does a lot of respiratory physiology work and whatnot. Uh -huh. And he was, he worked as the chair of uh, the mm -hmm. Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology yeah. for a time. Mm -hmm. And right when I thought, and I can't comment on how old he is because I'm not certainly, you know, I'm not certain on that. So, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but comparable, you know, he's at a point where he could very easily say, okay, time to spend time yeah. with grandkids or do whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and something tickled his interest and he sat down and wrote a grant and is now back involved in his lab and stepped yeah. down from the chair position is, is mm -hmm. full, you know, full throttle on research again. So oh, how, how great of a career is it where you can do that, you know, uh, uh, as a profession? Yeah. You know, no, uh, no I agree. Yeah. But, so I want to uh, I want to ask, um, just because you've done all of these things, there are a lot of people who don't know what really encapsulates pain research and maybe aren't even aware that pain research specifically is a thing. And that's one of the purposes mm -hmm. of this podcast, not only to, to, you know, edutain people, mm -hmm. but to, to get a little bit more awareness out there of, of what's being conducted in pain research and how that translates to, to pain management and treatment. But there are a lot of different avenues just within pain research as with any other academic discipline where you can focus. And it kind of seems like you said you're a bit schizophrenic with, with even your research interests. Mm -hmm. I want to start with, with knowing just the landscape in general from where we are now. And by the time people listen to this, it'll be early 2022. 
but rewind to 1999 when you're when you're coming into mm-hmm. you know academia as a researcher um, on your own and in, in, in you know more the captain of your own ship how different is is pain research as a whole now than it was then and in what ways Okay, so we mentioned earlier the simplicity of the studies, clinical studies, because that's how I started mm-hmm. in, in doing pain research, working in the facial pain center, and you know we would do we would do pretty thorough assessments, and being able to you know describe pa- the patients things like you know their their pain, pain and pleasantness, how it related, sleep, depression, mm-hmm. um, coping, you know coping strategies. The CSQ coping strategies questionnaire was a big deal with with Frank Keith, and so. And tell people a, a little bit, because we have all kinds of people that follow yeah. along. Uh, just take the take that questionnaire and, and break down what are some of the components? Oh, what does that tell oh you? yeah. So, for example, some people would, would, would distract themselves, distance, distance, distance themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, some people would turn to religion, like hoping and praying was one of the items on there. Um, some people then would want to think about it and, you know, focus on it and tell themselves it's, it's not so bad. So you can sort of do the positive cognitive reframing. There was items on there that reflected catastrophizing, which really is the opposite of that is thinking about how horrible it is. It's never going to quit, you know, along those lines. So it's trying to understand what people think and do to manage their pain on their own. So it's, you know, it's not a medical intervention. It's something what do people do naturally and trying right. to understand as cognitive behavioral therapy, be, you know, was becoming popular. And of course, back then, big pain centers could make money and they existed. Right. Um, as figuring out what are you, what do you want to teach the people to do or not to do in cognitive behavioral therapy? So anyway, so that, that was big. And so just, Using psychological instruments on pain patients was 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 somewhat new. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the first couple of studies I did involved the MMPI two, the Minnesota Multiphasic Pain Inventory. Mm-hmm. No, not pain inventory, personality, personality inventory. inventory. Yeah. Um, in fact, that's why I met Roger. Or that's how I got connected to Roger because I drove up to Jacksonville to a big pain clinic that Virgil Whitmer ran, and uh, probably logged went through 500 patient files and collected all the data out of them. And as it turned out, Roger had, that was Roger's first job after he got his PhD working in that, in that clinic. That was, and, that was and, the connection so, through data. So a third of the reports I would read were signed Roger Fillinger, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I had not met him. All right. I have, this is one of those points where I have to jump in because something's been nagging me. You mentioned that when you, when you walked up to Roger at his poster, uh-huh. um, and I don't mean to have you lose your train of thought, he, was, okay. he had a cast on. What, what happened? What was the... Oh, he's a basketball player. Okay. okay. So if, he, if I don't know if he brought this up in his, but he apparently played on a state championship basketball yeah, team in I, high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so so he was a big player. And, okay. I'm only going to guess even in his mid-20s, and you know how we think we're all young, but (laughs) but at some point, you know, I know he's real competitive, and so he was probably doing some serious elbow banging, and, Uh you know, somehow, you know, he probably went down and broke his arm. So he had a cast. Somebody banged back, yeah. So he had a cast. (laughs) Okay, all right, so so the MMPI data. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, so that was my connection. It's actually the first publication I ever made. I actually did a cluster analysis of the MMPI-2 it was probably the first paper published of the MMPI-2. Mm-hmm. Larry Bradley, who has worked with us, who's worked with you know Roger in his knee study in, from Alabama, mm-hmm. had actually done it with the MMP one, MMPI-1. Okay. And I remember then showing it and meeting Larry Bradley. He came to me and introduced himself. 
Okay. So again, those right. those, those connections. connections yeah. yeah. You just have to be open to that stuff when it comes you, along. You, again, if you, you right, you, you you think about who could I go meet? What have I got in my hand? Who can I go talk to that's interested in this? Yeah, yeah. And that's how you network, and that's how you make connections. And yeah. a lot of people don't. Or you start a podcast. That you works start too. Start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, these days, yeah, there wasn't such a thing back then. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So you know, as a graduate, as a, either a graduate student or in my postdoc, I was seeing patients and did a lot of 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 clinical work. Again, being good at the analysis piece, I did, I did several meta-analysis. In okay. fact, some of the biggest, the most hits I've ever had is on papers. Which is... Is doing meta-analysis. Right, which is, which is where you're analyzing multiple findings Correct. from papers together. Yeah, so you're taking, you know, 100 papers, boiling it down to the 30 that are of high quality, and then you add them together to say, is there support? First one was probably sex differences. Mm-hmm. Is there really... Do, do women who are receiving treatment for pain actually report a greater pain than men. Mm-hmm. You know, why is that? Does, you know, women have childbirth. Well, if you were to ask someone who's more sensitive to pain, they'd all say men. Right. Or women bear children. Um, but it turns out... Common misconception. As, as we all, right? you know, yeah. that at least based on the clinical data, that that's not the case. Yeah. And actually, the, the laboratory data shows that too. And that's the, that's important to point out. And, and the reason why I ask that is because it's a great opportunity there, especially in the, in the current era. There's... I don't want to say that science is under fire, but there's... Mm-hmm. Uh, skepticism, which we are one of the few fields that actually embraces that. You know, skepticism is great. We, we, that's a, a large part of what we do. But to the outsider, to, to the layperson, uh, a lot of times you'll hear uh, comments like, well, yeah, but I found this study or mm-hmm. uh, I've heard somebody say this. So a lot of people aren't aware that, a, that meta-analyses mm-hmm. are actually a thing where you can look at all of these these studies that have been conducted in, in oftentimes non-related labs at different points in time that are asking the same questions or dancing around the same mm-hmm. question and analyze all of them together and, and look at, at the, the amalgam of, of all of that work. It's not just cherry-picking yeah. an idea here or there. And there's a, that, of course, crosses multiple scientific fields. Everybody does Everybody that. does it, yeah. yes. yeah, and, and that is really important, and I actually bring this up to students often is the reason you have to do that, I think, has to do with sampling. Mm-hmm. So if I pull stuff out of my clinic, you know, because it's not randomly sampled, not even close, right. uh, and I come up with a finding, well, what, what happens if we do it in a different clinic, maybe, you know, run by a different group of folks, mm-hmm. maybe in a, not in a university health center, and did they find the same thing? And so that's right. the whole idea right. is by looking at at least five and maybe 25 studies their sampling frame was different. Mm-hmm. And so you're more likely then to be able to, you know, determine something. Well, it's funny because we really never accept a hypothesis. Our job is to, is to right, to reject it. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I say that oftentimes in my family. Oh, but so-and-so just proved. I was like, well, we actually don't do that at all. We, we're just in the business of disproving. <laughs> no, it is. I, and we, I, we, because, you know, we all forget that. Yeah, Next yeah. We want to publish a paper. We yeah. say, what did I prove? Well, let me write about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the MMPI, too, and, and you conducted the meta, that's, that's where you had met um, 
a multitude of people multitude that, of that, people. that yeah. establishes connection. Yeah, and the way I thought actually I would lay this out yeah. is is that I've had a number of important people in my life mm -hmm. that I was fortunate enough to get to know, and they apparently thought I had enough to offer that they hung back out with me. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got a second take. <laughs> Truthfully. Yeah, and so one was Henry Gomelian in the Facial Pain Center, and so he and I published, uh, we probably have published at least 10 papers mm -hmm. in that era, um, we did a study on compliance because folks would come in to the pain center from around, you know, hundreds of miles. Mm -hmm. We'd have them for a day. They'd get a PT, a psychology, medicine sometimes, a pharmacy, and, and the dentist would look them over. We'd write up our evaluations, and then they would go back home to be treated. And we never followed them up. So actually, I did. That was one of the, one of, one of the studies I did there probably as a postdoc. And w when you say followed up, are, are you looking to see if they adhered to... Exactly. Yeah, yeah so we, we called the patients and talked to them about, one, what, what did they tell you you were supposed to do? So we were able to document the extent to which they remembered what they were told. Uh -huh. And then, did they follow up did on it? Did you do it? <laughs> and then looked at it as a function of what it was. Was it a medication change? Were you supposed to go to PT? Were you supposed to get a psychologist? Of course, getting a psychologist had the lowest compliance. Of course, of <laughs> yeah. course. So anyway, so the, the, but it was just, it was practical. It was business oriented. Again, that's sort of what I, what I, what I am. As far as compliance, yeah. uh, let's harken back to that for just yeah. a moment. There was clearly a, a, a greater stigma to seeking out professional help, even if it was recommended, um, mm -hmm. you know, with, with regard to uh, psychologists back then. I think that's one sure. pleasantly uh, accepted change now. People are much more open to that. But just in general, mm -hmm. those patients, did they comply pretty well with, uh, with the, the, the direction that they were given by their physicians and their allied health team or, or no? Well, medication was like 90, a medication change was like 98%. That mm -hmm. was the highest and then like, it worked all the way down, and I want to say 50% actually then received psychological counseling mm -hmm. if we had put it in our report, mm -hmm. which, which they got as well as their referring caregiver received. You think that's uh, just because pills are easier and less public? Or it, what it's, you... probably, it's, probably, it's probably some of that, is that we didn't send this to their psychologist. Mm -hmm. it, it was to their, and so their healthcare provider, may, may, one, may have been skeptical, mm -hmm. two, We'd always have to explain, I always had to explain to patients that we're not thinking, we're not saying this is in your head. Mm -hmm. Pain is real, but it's, it's influenced your life, right? You can't work, or you're not working, it's affecting your relationships. I'd always say, if I could write through a prescription to spend a month at Tahiti, would your pain be better? And they'd always say yes. <laughs> and I'd say, why might that be? Can, can you do that? Because I've never been to Tahiti. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, well, because you're right, you're all the stress got removed in yeah. your life. So yeah. I want you to see, it isn't necessarily going to make it go away, but I want you to see, even in your own life, you realize that your things, you know, that your everyday life influences your pain. Mm -hmm. That's, it. it's funny. We just yesterday, I sat down with Dr. Chris McCurdy, mm -hmm. um, and we were talking about Kratom. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, some of the people that that had written in questions, one of them was, hey, "Does this affect? Have you have you seen in the literature that kratom affects? Um, what was it? Your immune system? Mm -hmm. And so that ties in really well with the idea of the lurking variable, by the way, and in, in, in stress yeah. and whatnot and behavior, mm -hmm. because uh, that was what he thought. He's like, well, you know, 
not directly, but at the same time, if if this alleviates some stress and and, and mitigates you know symptoms of depression, well, that's going to have a systemic effect, and there are all kinds of things that feed off of that. And so you know perhaps your immune system and and, and healthy immune function, gut biome, all of that is indirectly affected. So you know maybe. But that's that's comes kind of back to that lurking variable idea that mm-hmm. you know not directly, but there could be something out there that is affecting this. Anyway, please. Yeah, carry on. yeah, absolutely. That was more for the listeners than for for you. But thanks for the yeah, no, allowing the interjection. That's, that's good. Absolutely, you're the star here. I'm just the, no. I, I'm just a salad dressing. You've you know for as smart <laughs> as you are, you've got that backwards. This is this is your show right now. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Um, so anyway, so you know, being being skeptical. Mm-hmm. I realized that the problem we were seeing is that these are people in a clinic and people who have already decided to go seek health care are not like everybody that has facial pain, as an example. Mm-hmm. They decided they wanted to go. It was bad enough to go. There's people who are every bit in as much pain who don't go. These are also people that had someone to pay for the visit. And so, boy, that's a really pretty self-selective. Yeah. And so what we really need to, we need to know about the people in the community that have eight out of 10, that are still working, that are still getting along, and, and what is it about them so we can teach the people who have fallen out of their life? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I started looking for opportunities to do that, and, I, and we had a dentist here in the college, Mark Heft. He was a dentist and a psychologist. He'd been with NIH the Dental Institute, but he did aging research, and he'd done a nice R01 where he looked at the sensory loss around the face, so he was, you know, also did pain stuff to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And he had gotten a grant. It was a small grant. I don't remember who it actually came from. But they, but they interviewed over the phone about 1,000 older adults in North Florida and asked them a bunch of questions about their pain, but they didn't he didn't have time to do anything with it, and I had just started my postdoc. Oh, that's fantastic. So I hooked up with him, and then I wrote papers that looked at sex differences. I looked at healthcare use as a function of being old, what predicted it. Uh, you know, so a number of things, but it was in, for the most part, a community sample, but it was 65 and older. Okay. And, and so that sort of got me into that. So then... There was working with Mark was a, a dentist named Greg Gilbert who did the Florida dental care study, and it was primary to look at, at the underserved in their oral health. But he also added in a lot of the items Mark had put in in the aging study. So there was mm-hmm. probably 10 items related to pain. Who'd you talk to? What'd you do? Uh, you know, and then several things about, did, you know, did, I can't remember all of them, but, you know, some measures about pain intensity. Sure. And that, that circles back to the idea that that yeah. wasn't central to his question, yeah. but he threw those variables in to see how that affected everything. But yeah. that seems to be a, a grouping of variables that falls right into your wheelhouse. Well, it is. <laughs> and so literally, they did they did oral exams every two years, uh-huh. and they did phone, phone interviews every six months, and they followed them for seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm the one that did all the work on the pain stuff. Mm-hmm. So I probably published 10 papers on Greg Gilbert's Florida dental care study, but about pain for the most part. And I did some other stuff related to to um, some of the other or oral manifestations. And but, just to, just out of curiosity, if we can if we can dig into that for just a second. And I know mm-hmm. this is a while ago, so you know everybody understands if, if mm-hmm. you've moved on since then. But when you're looking at more of these longitudinal type studies, seven years is a great time to track pain, especially if it's yeah. if it's after some kind of operation or or injury or repair. Mm-hmm. It, it, so I kind of wanted to ask that. 
in in this type of data set, mm-hmm. the pain that these um, and it's all orofacial pain, right? It's all uh, yeah, some, somehow yeah. dentistry related. Yeah. What what's the what's the etiology of, of that? Is well, it, well they, I think the way they asked it was the way the the one of the big national studies had asked. They they asked about toothache. Okay. They asked about burning pain across your face, so that would be like masseter pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I think it said toothache, burning pain. And jaw pain. Okay. So okay. so they ask this set of questions for you. They said, "Do you have jaw pain?" Yes. Okay. For your jaw pain, do you mm-hmm. have you seen a healthcare provider? Um, when it's at its worst, you know, rate it. And, you know, and a number of other, not, a few other things. Did you talk to some? Did, did you talk to family and friends about it? Mm-hmm. So I guess the the what I'm getting at is, mm-hmm. were most of these patients living with this or is it something that was perioperative in nature and that's where it began or, or is there a mix of everything yeah well they were randomly sampled only to follow the oral health of rural adults okay. over time but they so did have been a, but they did a group in jacksonville so they actually had an urban renew, urban rural comparison mm-hmm. which they use mostly i just use it as a control variable okay but but for them they used it probably the most interesting thing that came out of it was they actually asked folks about do you do you have do you or have you had pain? How long and something about how long did it take you to go seek care? Did you seek care after you received care? How satisfied were you with the care? Mm. So it was a way to document people who have pain and then delay and don't go treat it. Once they finally go and get whatever it was, the tooth pulled or you know mm-hmm. whatever they needed, and then how happy are you with the dentist who did it? Well, and of course, I mean, it's logical that the longer they delayed, the less satisfied they were. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those relationships that, you know, is so seldomly documented. Yeah. And so that was, I thought that was an interesting paper. Well, longer, longer studies like that, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a, a data set that has two time points that mm-hmm. are four years apart. And yeah. that unto itself is, is difficult. So that, uh, it's a, kind of a gem to come a, a, upon and, and be able to have yeah. access to that and be able to work those data to, over yeah. seven years. Yeah, 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 and 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 some of the stuff they didn't always repeat, mm-hmm. but but it was interesting. Again, an example of working with, with you know Mark Heft and Greg Gilbert, then Don Price, who if anyone who's a pain researcher knows, mm-hmm. he actually came to Florida, and he had a stage model, that he that he believed in, and it started with pain intensity, moves over into pain unpleasantness, and he was one of the folks that, sort of heralded this concept of pain unpleasantness. So it's sort of the the emotions that come with pain sensitivity. Yeah. And he did some great MRI work to show that temporally it followed the sensory input. Mm-hmm. And then he looked at then the emotions that come out of it. And he looked at depression, anxiety, frustration, fear. I think that was the fifth one. Mm-hmm. And then looked at the behaviors that, that came out of all that. And he had a huge data set from College of Vir- no, see, BC, whatever in Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth. Virginia Commonwealth, BCU. Yeah. I have a friend of mine coaching volleyball there yeah. right now. Okay, yeah. okay. And it was like 2,000 patients. Mm-hmm. And so, I, okay, and so what I didn't say is I learned to do structural equation modeling and did it on my dissertation. Uh-huh. In fact, I walk in there and everybody, my committee said, Joe, we have no idea what you did. We don't even know what to ask you. <laughs> so we're just going to sit here and shut up. Oh, man. <laughs> So anyway, so so I knew how to do structural equation modeling. So I did 
I used his data and we looked at sex, we looked at age, and I think that we looked at race, and depending on how the, the, the different stages linked up differed. It was, it was very interesting. Huh. I, I like that idea that, that there's uh, you know, so, some kind of catalyst, some, t- some kind of antecedent that, that's mm-hmm. pain-related, and, and then scaling that and yeah. saying, but, but one thing that doesn't happen enough, and, and you know, we, we do this with a lot of our studies, we'll, we'll ask a, a, for a pain rating, but then also ask for that unpleasantness rating because you, you don't want to take for granted that, yeah, all right, everybody is subjective in, in, in their experience of pain, but there's got to be some variation in the response to that also. And then the response to that in yeah. turn leads to emotions that surround that experience yeah. and then the behavioral component that results in dealing with that or reacting to that emotional response. I think it's brilliant. No, and it, and it sort of trails back to the point I made earlier about someone who has 8 out of 10, let's mm-hmm. say at their worst, mm-hmm. they're in the clinic, they they you know they're depressed they you know don't they, you know the old they don't get off the, the sofa yeah, you know I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. don't meet the pejorative yeah. um, versus the person who is still working you know has a job still goes to work every day still eight out of ten is their worst pain mm-hmm. in the past week what's the difference and so this model actually allowed you to spread that out and and look at the variability and you know and of course we you know especially back then, you know, group differences was the mm-hmm. easiest way to find significance, and that's what we were publishing 20 years ago. Yep. And when you say group differences, <laughs> men versus women? Men versus or... women, every way you want yeah. to cut it, you know, yeah, yeah. by race, by age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, again, it was, you know, it was some more simplistic models. Yeah. <laughs> well, because everybody already, you know, worked on that and hammered that home so much, those of us who are working on it now have to dig a little deeper. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, well, then you're doing better work. Well, you know, and again, think of science, though, is we're all standing on each other's shoulders. That's right. Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. you know, you, you took what I did and made it better. Hopefully. Um, and, and, you know, so what you do then is, is much, more, much more useful in terms of treating a patient because really that's the end game, you know. Right, you know, right. Being, we're talking about you know price and pain, but speaking on you know standing on the shoulders of giants, it would all yeah. be impossible without the groundwork that was yeah. that was laid in in the areas that, that you were talking about now. You know, not that long ago. You know, when you yeah. when you think of it. So yeah, yeah. but please continue. I'm I'm yeah. I'm enthralled. Here. So anyway, so after having done that work in the community, well, I was like four years into being a faculty. Now it's time to write a grant so I can get promoted. <laughs> Well, I'd actually get tenure, come to think of it, because back then it was only five years. Oh, man. Um, And so I wrote an R01, and what I wanted to do was to look at race, and so, but I wanted to include Hispanics, because I wanted to do something that was unique. Well, you sort of have to, to get a grant. Sure, And so we did 3,500 phone interviews over three intervals with Hispanics, African-Americans, and whites down within Broward and, and Dade County because mm-hmm. that was a reasonable place. And you could, you know, I learned about census tracts and how you look at who lives there and they're there, you know, and so you can pick the ones you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so that... And also control for, for location as well. You know, yeah, location. Those, those, those and kinds you of can things. Even, if you can get all of that sample yeah. from one region yeah, or yeah. one... Yeah. I, I always thought of getting someone to geocode it and see how far they were from the nearest dentist oh, or yeah. doctor. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we asked all the stuff that, you know, Mark Heft and Greg Gilbert had and added a bunch of more stuff, added all of Don Price's stuff in there. So uh-huh. I had all these questions asked about who they'd talked to. 
did you see a dentist? See a doctor? Did you see a uh, you know? Did you see a therapist? Did you see a PT? Did you see a um, chiropractor? And so, really, I mean, the grant was the title of the grant. Let me think about it. Was actions taken for oral facial pain? Mm-hmm. You know, and that you know, the action would be even. Did you just talk to your family and friends? Uh-huh. And then we asked, what did they advise? Did they tell you to take a medication? Did they tell you to go see a physician? Uh-huh. And probably the most interesting stuff, so we out- measured acculturation. We wrote a paper on acculturation and Hispanics and looked at how, and, and again, as you would guess, those that were less accultured had more pain, were much more likely to be treated. And b- before you go on, did did you also ask, did you do it? Did did you oh, yeah, follow yeah. their suggestions? What have you done? Yeah, because we asked. Yeah. We actually we talked. We followed them three times, three months apart. Okay. okay. So initially, they were in the study because they had. They said yes to one of the screening items. Did you have a toothache? Did you have burning? You know, all, all the. I think we had five different categories. We also asked them about diabetes because we wanted a we wanted a control yeah. to see. You know, just to compare. We actually wrote a paper on diabetes mm-hmm. and pain, um, and. Uh, so I'm trying to think what else was interesting that we came out of that. Another one that you might not have expected. White males were way more likely to drink alcohol to manage their pain than any other, any other really? subgroup. Yes. Huh. That's interesting. And, you know, whenever, whenever something like that comes up, I always also think of contributing factors. Mm-hmm. And, and I also have to wonder, and without being a demographer, but mm-hmm. socioeconomic status well, uh-huh. you know, maybe people have more money to treat their pain that way. You know, white males, if, if you've got more, you know, disposable income and you can, you can go off and spend, you know, three hours at the bar, you know, after work every day or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, that, that could also affect yeah. that. That's just, yeah. Without going down that rabbit hole, I, I, that stuff is always interesting because then the next yeah. question, of course, is, well, Yeah, because what, what we did is we had the census track average income. Mm-hmm. It never pays to ask people how much money they make because right. they all lie or don't answer. Right. <laughs> but I found the best questions are to ask someone the difficulty they would have paying a $500 medical or dental bill if one came uh, if they came across one unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And everybody answers it. It correlates highly with all the other ones that 60% of the people answer. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it's a sneaky proxy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And, and it does give insight in the same yeah. way asking, you know, income is yeah. to what, how that factors into not seeking help for their pain. You know, right. uh, and so, what do you find with that? What, what? Well, we use it as a control variable. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, for income. Okay. Um, be, uh, yeah, and I, I can't even, I don't think we ever, we probably somewhere reported some significant finding, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, you know. I can't wait to get to the point in my career where I've published <laughs> so much that I can't yeah. even remember what, you know. <laughs> uh, 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 now, I don't mean to brag. No, no, no. And I, and I know fantastic. Roger will put me to shame, but I actually printed out my, my citations two nights ago to remember what I did. <laughs> I and wait. I was shocked. I have 186. Wow. Hey, I, that's, I, I was yeah. like, holy cow, I can't believe this. Well, How could I have done those? <laughs> when, I've, when I've spoken to faculty who are farther along than I am, which doesn't take much, but, but when, one thing that, that rings true with all of them is, yeah, you know, I just kind of put my nose down and wrote yeah. and published. And, and at one point, you pick your head up and you look back and go, oh, wow, I, I did all that? So... Yeah, no, and, I think there's a lesson and, there. And I think we might have mentioned earlier about how hard we work when we're in our early stage in our career. Mm-hmm. And 
I was, I, when I came here to Gainesville to graduate school, I had kids in kindergarten, second grade, and eighth grade. So I had kids. I can't, I can't imagine doing that yeah. all at the same time. Uh, in, but I would work till 11 family. most every night mm. and then go home. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't see my kids, but come Friday night at 5, exactly, yeah. till Monday morning, I never, ever worked. Yeah. And so I spent the whole weekend with my kids. And of course, my kids think, oh, well, this is what everybody does. So they were perfectly happy with <laughs> right, it. Right. They didn't feel, in fact, I even tell them now, you go to them and say, oh, geez, you guys, sorry, I, I dragged you off to poor graduate school for 10 <laughs> years. And, you know, I was, ne I was never around. I said, oh, dad, no, it was great. You've really made us appreciate money. And mm -hmm. we, the, time, the weekends that we always did stuff as a family. And so all the things you think you're feeling bad about as you're doing them turns out to be yeah. made your kids stronger and yeah. you know. Well and you know, and, and not to mention that that they're not I don't want to say that that your or your wife's parenting style is like this, but think about the fact that if 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 you're engaged in work so much during the week, mm -hmm. that gives them the time and the distance and the freedom a little bit more to do. You know, they're not under somebody's thumb all the time and 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 hey, you know dad saying hey can you help me with this or whatever they get to do their thing and then on the weekend they get all of your attention that, that's pretty cool that's, that's yeah, a good it, way to do it and it, I, it I would venture off. to say again I, you know you say you're 71 years old I don't think people would guess that and there's got to be something about how you've conducted those 71 years that allows you to be so vital and youthful and vibrant now in, in of a you know a healthy disposition and you know I think that Whatever whatever approach you took, that's got to yeah. have gotten you where you are. Uh, I, and I, a lot of it is a combination of positive attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, going back to my story of, you know, being the ADHD-ish, I was, you know, wasn't diagnosed. I'm right. not trying to say I am, right. but that and realizing, oh, just because I'm running around and knocked over somebody's face doesn't mean I'm a bad kid. I was just bored. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you don't internalize it. You realize you're good. I was good in sports, so I got lots of strokes for that. Mm -hmm. And you just go through life knowing your glass is at least three quarters full. Right. <laughs> and so the fact that it isn't perfect is irrelevant because the good part of it is so good. Yeah, yeah. All right, I want to ask, before before we wrap up, uh, one question I'd like to ask, and I know there's a lot more to talk about. Yes. I want to ask, you, you, you've painted this very vivid picture about how you got to where you are now in your role, even though we just barely, you know, yeah. you know, broke the surface on this, of, of where pain research is now. Mm -hmm. Take a look just toward the horizon, maybe not even over the horizon. What do you think it's most important for this field the direction that we move and, and maybe uh, a couple ways that we can get there or who's doing uh, some strong work in getting us toward that with specific regard to not only pain research but treatment management as well. Is that a, is that a Man, complex that's, question that's to ask? That's a loaded question. Yeah, of so, course it is. So, so okay. Yeah, and so, so I'm gonna, I'll back up a little bit and say this is a perfect time to quit. Um, because I've sort of explained how I interacted with people that were my mentors, mm -hmm. and I took what I learned from them and moved on. That, that's a nice piece. Yeah. But what we haven't talked about is all the sensory testing I've, stuff I've done. I know, and that's why I want to. Yeah. So we did this, and, and just to, yeah. to give a heads up, we've done this with a couple. We've had only one guest now mm -hmm. that circled back, but I plan on mm -hmm. doing the same thing with Roger Fillingham yeah. and with Star Booker. I had phenomenal, uh, of, of all of the, mm -hmm. the guests that we've had on, there are a number 
again, I use that, uh, of guests that, that the conversation's very easy and they have such a rich background and interest and activity now that you just can't, you can't cover it in 50 minutes. And this isn't one of those three-hour podcasts. So um, well, it's, it's okay to leave some of that on the table. I know that, that bugs you, Joe. You're very much about structuring and you've got the you know, okay, act one, act two. You, you ended me right in a good, good. place. So okay, I'm happy good. with that. So we can well, save act three for later. Plus you're a great interviewer. Oh, well, thanks, I compliment thanks. I appreciate yeah, that. So there's, yeah, so there's two phases that's going to be perfect. My, okay, good. Um, to do that, and I, okay, so I'm avoiding the question you just asked me, but I think I've run out of things to yep. strategies time to, for time avoiding to face it. the music. Yeah, so and this can be and, and I'll and I'll answer it maybe like a politician. Okay, is I'll answer in general sort of what I think about the problems are, um, and it's that it's sort of the model academics uses now to pay for stuff, mm-hmm. and so. Our, our, our universities are used to living off federal money. So we get grants, they get, they, we get our salary support, and they get indirects. UF gets almost 60%. Now, mm-hmm. I write a million-dollar grant, they get another 600000 mm-hmm. And so the problem is, is that I write a grant, I collect the data, and this has happened to me. And rather than spending two years, because, you know, it takes you all four or five years to finish the project. Sure. Or they would have cut you back to three. Mm-hmm. Maybe they do anyway, and you still can't. You, <laughs> you barely finish it. Is that you don't have time to write the papers. Mm-hmm. So I have more data to write more papers than I've written. But our model is whoever is, in, you know, my, my department chair, the dean, whatever it is, I, I need to write another grant because I'm obligated to cover X percent of my salary. Mm-hmm. And so the states have gotten used to living off federal money, and it's a tough way to go back. And so you, you, you hear about, at NIH, them starting to say, you know, we're going to quit giving some investigator three R01s. We need to spread them around. You know, over time, I don't know, is there going to be a limit? And so... So they're they're starting to see it's a problem, mm-hmm. but it's but it's a problem from soup to nuts, all the way up and down, mm-hmm. and so that's a problem. The other problem is that I think the people that sit on study sections, not that some of them aren't amazing, but they do what they do, and that's what they understand. And if you write a grant that appeals to them that they understand that's what gets funded. And for people that, that don't know, study sections are the groups that convene gotcha. to decide whether a grant gets funded yeah, or NIH not, right? to invites, score a grant. Yeah, yeah, invites experts in this giant, this huge topical area, and you send your grant to one that has overlap with that. And you probably get someone who really knows what you do, someone who may know a little bit of what you do, and you know the third right. one, you never know. Right. Yeah, and the fact that... Let me say, I don't want to lose my train of thought. Sorry here. about that. Yeah, is the fact that I'm, and I've heard this also from other investigators, that they're having a harder and harder time to tell the difference between the good ones. Mm. So it's clear you can take these are 50% that are clearly lacking, these are 50%, they're all good. And we're going to fund 15% of them. Yeah, and I can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, so. That's a problem. Well, if we didn't have to do salary support on everybody, we could fund all 50% of them. Right. Because, believe it or not, on the last R01 I wrote, of course, they always cut your 20% back. They almost cut out all the science, and all I had was salary support. Wow. 
And of course, you know, I was lucky a couple of people left the university, which freed up their salary support. <laughs> I didn't replace them so I could actually do the science. Hmm. And so that seems a, a really poor trade off to have to make. It, it, it is. It <laughs> yeah. is. And so 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 it's a combination of the way we pay for things, the fact that we tend to write following the footsteps of either who's already there. And so it eliminates something that's so radically innovative mm -hmm. that someone says, you know, this probably isn't going to work. I can't support it. But sometimes that's what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's and, the skeptic and, in me. And to be clear, that's something that's happening across all universities, all institutions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's not... Yeah, so that's the problem I'm here. seeing. And so, and so, yeah, and of course, you know, everybody... It look, our lives look romantic. Mm -hmm. And so I was telling someone, this, okay, I have my job. I have my faculty line. And maybe over the past 10 years, at least let me go back a few years, mm -hmm. I probably had eight or nine amazing postdocs. Mm -hmm. But when I quit, only one of them is going to get my job. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen to the other nine? Right. Right. It's like, it's, you know, it's nice to have, gra and see, we get graduate students because they do all the work on our grants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a, see, you see, it's this weird system that isn't, I, I, it's. Do you it, think it's possible to break the wheel on that, though? <laughs> or, is, or is this machine so big and, and moving along? That, yeah. That, I, 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 well, again, we're getting slightly that's off. That's another one, yeah. We're slightly getting off pain right now, but no, I, I personally think. That's okay. think yeah. We need to value other things other than being a doctor mm -hmm. and, you know, and being an NIH-funded academic at the top of the heap. Look at the, look at the employment shortage right now. Mm -hmm. Look at the people who we need that have expertise in all these technical areas that we don't have. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting some work done in my home over the past few years. Every construction guy that shows up is over 50. Mm. There is no one in that younger age cohort who values becoming a plumber. Their parents said, oh, you have to go to college or you won't find a good job. But I bet you my plumber makes more than most of those students when they graduate. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you 100% yes, on I'm that. I'm sort of, you know, preaching slightly off the topic. No, but that's, that's, that's important, though. But it does relate to the fact that we have so many postdocs. Mm -hmm. We have so many graduate students. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the university needs their tuition to stay in business. That's so right. we're overproducing. So that's, that's actually good, and, and that's a hot take, as they say nowadays, because I asked, you know, and, and leaving it up to you, because you are the star of the show, what, what's next, and in, in, in where are we, where do we need to go? And, and really the underlying answer to that is, well, no matter what we do next, there are some infrastructure, funding, you know, methodology, culture-related aspects of this job that produces mm -hmm. the science that really need a second look to see if this is the best way to do it. And it sounds like from, from your perspective, and I haven't written grants that, that fund these long studies yet, but, mm -hmm. but I can only imagine how frustrating it would be to be able to write a couple papers out of this and then have a multitude of data that's just begging to be looked at and, and published because that's, yeah. that's knowledge that's being not intentionally by you, the person mm -hmm. who asked the question and collected this mm -hmm. or, or led the group that collected it, but, but it's being withheld from society that, that could benefit from the questions that are asked uh, from that data set. And so that's, that's frustrating. And that's a, I think it's a fantastic answer to that question that we haven't gotten yet. Yeah, yeah. And maybe a good place to, to leave off. But 
I'm only going to end this on the stipulation that in the rare occasion that you do get some free time, you come back and talk to me some more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, the, I mean, the, only, I mean, the only way to do it. That was a scary it. pause. Yeah. Well, it, if I have to wait until you retire, I'll do it. I'll come yeah. back. Well, Otter, well you know. it's, 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 yeah. Well, here, here's, <laughs> the, here's the deal. Top Gun, the movie Top Gun, came yes. out in the mid-80s. Yeah. They're going to make a sequel. They've made a sequel, and it's going to be released in, in 2022. Uh, okay. So what's, uh, let's say that took them a little over 35 years to do. <laughs> I've, I'm looking forward to that. So we're going to yeah. leave people with the possibility that they might get a Dr. Joe Riley Part 2 on yeah. Price of Pain. Well, and that works for yeah. me. So, so really, the truth of the matter is, is, is I'm acknowledging that I'm not going to get everything done <laughs> before I can take an hour for you. It's to give you a date sometime in January when we're just going to come in here and do it. Let's, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's really the only way to do it. And Let's, again, of course, what people may or may not know, I had cervical spine surgery eight, six weeks ago. So, you're yeah. a legend. And so Joe. that slows me down a little bit, you know. So you end up with a, you know, like a headache in the middle of your shoulder. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, well, you got to press on. We'll, we'll set a date. And I'm going to apologize in advance to everybody that gets bumped <laughs> off the bottom of Joe's list to come back in here. But we're trying to do important work. So. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. But it was Thank fun. It was fun. It was it was it was only half as painful as I thought it would be. <laughs> I told you I was going to make it easy on you. <laughs> no, it is, and you're actually a, an outstanding interviewer. Thank so you, so you much. made you made it so easy. All right, we'll do it again. It's hey, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.